This podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, it's sex, drugs and the Brexit party. We hear about how Nigel Farage's new party is racing ahead in the polls and causing more problems for the Tories. Plus, there's a fiery debate on drugs legalisation. And finally, I hear about what it takes to be a real lesbian. First up, James Forsyth writes in our magazine's cover story that the Tories' inability to deliver Brexit may deliver Farage's Brexit party a win at the upcoming European elections. And could we be looking at the beginning of a more European-style coalition government within our own parliament? Earlier, our deputy political editor, Katie Balls, talked to James, along with Matthew Goodwin, political academic and author. James, considering the Brexit party has only officially existed for a month or so, why have they been so successful in the polls? Because I think they are tapping into widespread public anger at the fact that Brexit has not been delivered. I think it's quite interesting if you listen to what Nigel Farage is saying. This isn't an argument about a kind of GATT 24 agreement or the benefits of trading on World Trade Organization terms. It's very simply, you voted for Brexit, why haven't the politicians delivered it? And I think here in in Westminster, there's a sense that Brexit has become more complicated since the referendum. Everyone now wants to discuss rules of origin, checks at the border, all those kind of things. What Farage has realised is that for vast swathes of the electorate, it's actually become a simpler question since the referendum. It is now a question about where power resides in the country. If the electorate tell the politicians to do something, do they do it or not? And that is why I think the Brexit party has had such a meteoric rise. Matt, you've been looking into how the party might fare in the upcoming EU elections. How well do you think they're going to do? Well, I think they're going to do very well. I think the only question is whether they come first place or second place. They started very well in the opinion polls. They've been averaging around the 25, 26% mark, although in some polls they've they've done a little bit better. If you drill down and look at who's voting for them, what I found quite remarkable is the speed at which the party has made inroads among leavers. So in some of the data that we have, more than half of Britain's leavers say they're going to vote for the Brexit party. They've they've taken a big chunk out of the Conservative electorate. And as we saw with UKIP prior to the referendum, the Brexit party is especially popular among the working class. And I would agree with James, having watched some of the rallies recently, what's striking to me is that Farage isn't even talking about the EU. In fact, at the Nottingham rally, it wasn't really even mentioned at all. Uh, It's all about this anti-Westminster, anti-system feeling. And that, I think, will allow them to go further than UKIP because, of course, they're also not even mentioning the more toxic issue of immigration. So I think there's, there's certainly a higher ceiling than there was for the UK Independence Party. Now, Matthew, we may be getting ahead of ourselves here, but if you look to how the Brexit party could fare in a general election if you keep this momentum up, do you think this could be the beginning of a move away from two-party politics, as tends to happen here, and to more European-style coalition governments? Well, I do think one of the ironies of the Brexit moment in Britain is that it has made our politics more European. 
if you look at the share of the vote going to the two main parties, it's now down to 58-57%, way down on that 80% in 2017. We're seeing an array of smaller parties doing better, and our party system is fragmenting, which the Spanish and Italians and Germans and Swedes would would recognise uh, very well. But of course, we still have that majoritarian first-past-the-post system, which Farage knows is a massive obstacle for any challenger at a general election. The Brexit Party is currently averaging around 12 to 14% in the general election polls. I think it will struggle to break through at a general election. I think what we might see is the party winning the European elections, doing well in a series of parliamentary by-elections, but then you can almost read the general election campaign now, which will be, you know, vote Conservative or get Jeremy Corbyn, which will be a powerful, I think, narrative for Conservatives to go home, if you like. But, and this is a crucial but, even if the Brexit party pulls off 6 7 8%, you know, all Jeremy Corbyn needs at the end of the day is a two-point swing for a coalition and a four-point swing for a majority in his own right. The Conservatives simply cannot afford the Brexit party to get four or five points, never mind seven, eight, nine, ten points. So that indirect impact of the Brexit party, I could, I think, could be quite profound. And will they get defections? That's the other million dollar question. I mean, Farage was very adept at pulling away Reckless and Carswell. But in the end, perhaps some, you, know, you, you could argue he, he should have got more. You know, will there be some big heavyweight defections after these European elections? I think that's also one to watch. Now, James, we know that there is an eventual Tory leadership vacancy coming up. Theresa May has said she will leave once Brexit is delivered, the first part. Now, she may have to leave before Brexit is delivered at this rate. But do you think the fact that the Brexit party is doing so well in the polls is making Conservative MPs look differently at who should take over from Theresa May? For example, do you think it's increased the chances of the next leader being a, a Brexiteer who they think can get some of these voters back? I think the big Tory beneficiary from the rise of the Brexit party is Boris Johnson, because he adds to this sense of, you know, if you basically have to take on two populists in Farage and Corbyn, do you need a populist to beat a populist? And people view him as, you know, the simplest answer to how do you get these Brexit party voters to come back? You know, what better way to try and re-establish the Tory party's Brexit credentials than to pick the guy who led the Leave campaign as your leader? I do, though, think that there are there are two wrinkles to this. One is, can Boris Johnson get out of the parliamentary party? If he became leader, would would more Tory MPs defect not to Nigel Farage's Brexit party, but the other way to say Change UK or some other political party? And then I think there's the other question, which is, I don't think you could get no deal through this parliament. And I also think when you listen to Farage's rhetoric, I thought it was very interesting that he said about Boris Johnson at one of his launch events. Well, he voted for the withdrawal agreement, so they're all the same to me. I think the Brexit party would stand in any election, even if the Tories were standing in that election on vote for us so that we can leave with or without a deal. And I think, as, as, as Matthew was saying, as soon as the Brexit party are standing, 
life becomes much more difficult for the for the Tories in terms of winning a majority because you know the di- the, di- the, the the dynamics there they can't really afford to have a chunk of their vote. Uh, you know, yes, Labour would lose some votes to Brexit Party too, but the Tories would lose more. And given how finely balanced things are because of a total mess the Tories made of a last general election campaign, that could be fatal for them. Just quickly on that, James, you mentioned that if you look at the fact that the Brexit party, as soon as it starts to field candidates, would eat into the Tory vote. Is there any way to avoid that from happening? It seems that the Brexit party has now made such an imprint that they would try and field candidates where they're in an election in a month's time. I think it's a very simple way to avoid that happening, to pass a Brexit deal, to get out of the EU. I think that, you know, I don't, I think that Farage's rallying cry is that we haven't left yet. Now, if you leave on this deal, I don't deny that there will be people who say, oh, this isn't a real proper Brexit. But I think the mass appeal of this thing goes right down. The air comes out of the balloon if the UK leaves the EU. And I think that that is the problem. And I think that, you know, the one of the few silver linings for the Tories in all this is, you know, there's some polling recently from Hope Not Hate suggesting that the Brexit party will take a whole bunch of MEP, MEPs off Labour in the North East and the North West. If that were to happen, I think you might get some Labour MPs beginning to think about their own seats and thinking, look, let's just get this issue off the stocks. Let's just get out. And then that takes the air out of the Farage balloon. Matt, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I do. I think that you know, if you look at the potential impact that the Brexit party could have, I think winning the European elections, as we discovered in 2014, further convinced the Conservative Party then that you know, they really needed to stick to the referendum pledge and they needed to to honour that pledge. I think Labour, there is a clear view on the Labour benches that the Brexit party and and Brexit support has the potential to disrupt and whittle away uh, some of those uh, big Labour majorities in the North. You know, but I think what's really interesting in terms of now where we are in the cycle is this question of what's the post-European election strategy for Farage? What is the strategy beyond a proportional election system? Is it to begin to target those Labour seats, as indeed they're doing now, spending a lot of time, for example, in Wales? Um, I've been told that they're going to spend a lot of time in northern England between now and the European Parliament elections, because in the words of one... Brexit Party activists, the Conservatives are going to vote for them anyway. They don't need to fight for the Conservative vote. But they've clearly latched on to this idea, which began really before the referendum in in the sort of UKIP circles, that there is a lot of potential for them in those Labour areas too. So it may be that actually what we begin to see is is a sort of broader offensive by, by Farage and that party. I thought the selection of Claire Fox was quite interesting as a Brexit Party candidate. They've clearly become aware of the need to sort of not recycle, you know, the, the Paul Nuttles of the world and the former UKIPers of the world. They're clearly wanting to go in a different type of direction. You know, whether that will pay off remains to be seen. The only thing I'd take a slight issue with in terms of what James said is when we're out, I think it's certainly true that we'll take air out of the balloon. But I think there are still going to be a lot of people tuning into what out really means. If out is a sort of, you know, soft customs union, Mr. Whippy, super soft type Brexit, I I think Farage will still have a lingering market, not necessarily of 15 percent, but perhaps six, seven, eight percent. It'd be interesting to see how that rolls out. 
That was Katie, James and Matthew. Next up, defence lawyer Chris Dahl writes in this week's magazine that the only way to limit the damage done by the illegal drug industry is to legalise all drugs. But Peter Hitchens disagrees resolutely, saying that all drugs, even those with lower classifications like marijuana, cause permanent damage and should be strictly prohibited. They both join me now. Chris, you've spent 25 years as a defence lawyer and you say in your piece that the one thing that links most of the cases you've worked on is drugs. You then go on to say that you think the only answer is to scrap prohibition. Can you explain to listeners how you came to that conclusion? Because because I've been watching the consequences of criminalisation in terms of the costs to society, the costs to those people who are involved in drugs, who take them, who sell them, their families and everybody involved. And the law as it operates in practice day to day is failing everyone. It just doesn't work. It, it leads to misery, it leads to death, and it wastes vast amounts of human and financial capital. So it's the only logical conclusion that I come to having seen day in day out for 25 nearly 26 years uh, how drugs uh, play out through the criminal justice system uh, and of course I'm voting for Christmas if you think about it because it would it would slash by half or more all the work available for criminal defense lawyers if you were to legalize and license drugs so I'm arguing against my own sort of profession's interests but it's something that I, I fundamentally believe must happen. Peter, do you agree that the law is, is failing everyone? Well, I think the position's incoherent. I, I don't understand what he means uh, when he says that these things that he sees are, are caused by the, the law as it stands. I would very much like to hear more about exactly how that works as an argument. Well, because it's very hard to attack it if I don't really know what it is. Well, the argument is that all of the negative consequences, or the vast majority of negative consequences um, that are related to the supply of drugs, are caused by its criminalisation. The, the the cost of policing, the cost of the justice system, the cost of drugs themselves, the fact that drugs are so expensive for people to take is the driving force behind the crime that people have to commit and including one of the most tragic things that I've seen in my career is women who are so addicted to drugs and have to raise so much money not just for themselves but for pimps. There's one example recently of a, of a woman who was so addicted to illegal drugs she was a street sex worker in Manchester and she got to the point where her leg, her lower leg was infected by injecting heroin into the leg uh, and she had to have it amputated and was back at work on the streets within days of having a leg amputated. None of that would happen. Those examples would not exist if uh, drugs were licensed, could be obtained legally at a sensible cost, and at the time of supply and through the supply chain, if users had access to proper services and proper health uh, support, psychological, psychiatric and physical health support. So that's the argument. The argument is prohibition causes the price to go up if the price is that high, people have to commit crime and sell themselves in order to get drugs. And, and, and if you abolish prohibition, you legalise drugs, that activity won't take place anymore. OK. Well, let's start with point one. It's not compulsory to take drugs. People take drugs by choice, and they take drugs because they enjoy taking drugs. Nobody makes them do it. Uh, well, all drugs they, all the time. I listen to, Everybody I listen, takes drugs because they enjoy you. every single... I listened to you without interruption for oh. some time, and now I'm replying, so if you'd let me, it would be great. The reason for the existence of the law, and in, in a way all crime is caused by law, if we didn't have these tedious laws against things which we, we've decided to have laws against, then we wouldn't need to bother with police or courts or prisons or lawyers at all. It would all be completely futile. The reason why we have laws is because we think the things that the laws prevent or discourage are bad, and we wish to discourage them. And the taking of drugs is undoubtedly bad for those people who do it. 
which is why those laws exist and have been promoted across the world by the League of Nations and the United Nations for nearly 100 years. That's why the laws are there. So we could we could argue about that. The second thing is this, this ridiculous use of the word prohibition, which is wrong in so many ways. First of all, the law against drug possession in this country is not enforced and has not been enforced to any serious extent, probably since the mid-1970s, after Lord Hailsham, then the Lord Chancellor, told magistrates to stop enforcing it. You would have to go back an immensely long time to find a case of anybody sent to prison, for instance, for possession, possession of marijuana, although the, the actual maximum sentence for possession of marijuana is five years in prison and unlimited fine. The police simply let people off. Uh, whereas in those countries where the laws against possession are enforced, notably Japan and South Korea, which are law-governed free countries and very civilised ones, the use of these drugs is far lower than it is here. So your argument just does not hold water practically or morally, unless you think the issue of whether people take drugs or not is wholly morally neutral. You have to take some sort of attitude as to whether you think they should be doing it or not. If they are going to be prevented or discouraged from doing it, how else other than by the criminal law? Well, by the facility being available to them, to their own choices, to and to get the treatment that's required to, to come off and reduce use. I mean, not all drug use is inherently harmful. Not all drug use is inherently amoral. You take a, a moral position on the consumption of substances, which frankly I don't, I don't remotely understand as to why the voluntary consumption of drugs uh, by certain people is amoral. But, but well, I think if people such as you were compelled to spend a summer instead of going to Tuscany or wherever you go, working as, as some sort of orderly or other assistant in the ward of the mental hospital, then you would know why it was important. The, the devastation which particularly marijuana, uh, whose use you virtually promote by your, by your policies, the devastation which it brings into the lives of those who take it and into the lives of their families is colossal. But do you People know why that is? Do you know why that's so colossal? irreversibly mentally ill. It, why it is, is, yes, it's because they take a dangerous drug in the belief that, because it is now so fashionable and because the law does so little to discourage it, that it is harmless. They then find too late that it is not harmless. Their lives are ruined and the lives of their families are ruined. And this is an immensely common exactly. problem. Ask and my friend Patrick Coburn, a person of a total political liberalism, way to the left of me. Ask him about what happened to his son Henry and then ask him as well what happened when he wrote very bravely about what had happened to his son Henry and how many people in his own professional sphere came to him and said, do you know the same thing has happened to me? But, but that's it's extraordinarily common. And your attitude makes it more common and more likely. That's simply not true, because you're talking about oh. drugs that were purchased. Sorry, wait a minute. It's not true. It's not true that legalisation of drugs or the advocacy of legalisation of drugs is responsible for what you're describing. It helps it. No, it doesn't. It's what you're true. describing is people who have taken drugs which are uncontrolled, unlicensed, the strength is uncertain, they have no idea what they're taking. Unlike someone who buys a can of beer that has 4.9% alcohol, you know exactly what they're buying, they know exactly how strong it is, there is absolutely no doubt. You don't have people dying of uh, the consumption of ecstasy because, or, or wouldn't do because it's illegal. They die because they are taking drugs they can't, they have no idea of the strength. Well, the me, people who have died and suffered these problems are taking drugs that are way beyond the strength that anybody should be taking. Excuse and me, they wouldn't the, be if they could get them from a licensed premises. Does nobody die from the consumption of regulated, legal, licensed alcohol? Yes, does okay. nobody die from the consumption of regulated, legal, licensed cigarettes? And is there no crime attached to, uh, to both of these legalised drugs? On the contrary, as you ought to know in your, in your sphere of work, 
the, the one of the major problems faced by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs is in trying to control the immense amount of criminality surrounding them both because they are smuggled. It's hardly they're legal, any of but that. they're legal, but they're smuggled. It's and if you, any if you, of that. And if you and if you made the terrible mistake of, of, of joining a third legal poison to these, then that would be smuggled too, as is already evident in Colorado, where it has been legalized and where there is immense amount of smuggling and the illegal side of the trade has not been even importantly reduced by legalisation. You don't actually know what you're talking about. Well, with respect, I do know what I'm talking about. There is almost, well, there is almost no activity in the organised crime market in the sale and distribution of illegal tobacco. Such that there is, there is, is purely duty fraud. It's tobacco that's been purchased in other jurisdictions at very low tax rates and it's sold in the UK as a, as a form of tax and revenue fraud. It's smuggling, yes. Yes, smuggling for it, revenue which is fraud against purposes. The law. Yes, but it's not. You're not. They're not bringing in cigarettes in other than in tiny quantities that are inherently dangerous or more dangerous than those which are purchased legally in any tobacco well, cigarettes in the are UK. Dangerous, just as all marijuana yes, is dangerous, and this that's is, this is the simply, same goes for the same goes for illegal alcohol. It is I mean, you're, you're, you're missing. You're deliberately missing my point, which is that the the legalisation of a drug doesn't remove illegality from the trade surrounding it. It largely does. No, because the, the moment a drug is legalised in this country, how, the how, moment a drug is legalised in this country, then the exchequer will, will tax it. What percentage? Once it's taxed, well, it, will, it, it will be smuggled. Yes, but take, take alcohol and take tobacco. What percentage do you suggest of the alcohol and the tobacco markets is represented by smuggled, illegally imported or illegally distributed products? I'm either known or care. Illegally produced product. It's a minute fraction. It's 0.001% of the total. The vast majority of alcohol is purchased in supermarkets, in, in off-licenses. There's hardly any of the trade that you describe. That's the vast majority of marijuana would be if your ridiculous plan went ahead. Of course it would, and, and it people would, would know exactly would be, what they were taking. It would be widely available and it would be taxed, but there would also be a continuing illegal market. Why would there? There isn't a, there is nothing more than a tiny illegal market in alcohol and tobacco. And, and the tobacco market is only driven by the duty and the cost of buying tobacco in a legal way. It's inflated artificially by taxes. Just ask HM Revenue and Customs how much effort they have to devote to, to trying to control both of these things. Well, the point, the point, the simple point which you're trying it's to very little. obfuscate it's is, very that little. Illegal, is, that, is that legality does not remove Have, have you asked them? You're obviously trying to, you're obviously winging off on this direction. To have avoid, you asked to HM avoid, Revenue and Customs? Just my friend David Rains, who's constantly arguing this, who's a, who's a former employee of HM What percentage of their enforcement budget? A percentage. There is a fact here. You, you want to, you want to divert the discussion, as I can tell, from the major point, which is that the marijuana, whose illegality you seek to end, is very dangerous to those who take it. It's ruins people's lives, and I don't blame very you. Very few. I don't blame you for wanting to divert the discussion away from that, because you have no answer to this. No, your, I do. The answer your is actions that by, your actions by campaigning for the legalisation and ultimately the advertising and widespread distribution of a highly dangerous drug, which will ruin people's lives for profit, are absolutely morally shameful and disgraceful. I'm amazed that a respectable person can sit there and make these arguments. I and I, I'm amazed. It's a trison d'éclair. The supposedly educated, responsible people in this society constantly arguing for one of the most dangerous policies I've ever seen in my life, of which, if you are successful, you will be ashamed within 20 years of, of, of having argued. Walk the streets. Why do I have Walk to Walk the streets today and see the drug users. Yes, I do. See the I'm damage that's law. done. You name a society where there has been the universal enforcement of a 100% prohibition of drugs that's a society that you want to live in.
There isn't I, one. I've named the Middle East I've, tried. I've, I've, I've the Middle named, East execute I've, I've people. Named, they... You weren't listening earlier in the discussion to highly civilized countries, Japan and South Korea, in which law against possession of drugs is seriously enforced, and as a result, the use of drugs is much lower. It's enforced in a different way, in it's a not, different culture, but it's not enforced a hundred percent. There are still vast numbers of people suffering well, with drug problems in Tokyo and Kyoto and Osaka and Japanese cities. They are, it's some myth and fantasy that these societies are free of drug problems. Well, I, that's a, straw, that's a straightforward straw. But you don't man. even no, believe addiction is a real thing. Straw man. No one, no one ever assumes. No law. You of all people should know this is ever enforced to one hundred percent. Exactly. No law is obeyed. So 100%. you choose where what on the laws spectrum. do is they alter people's behaviour. And in Japan and South Korea, which, as I say, are free, civilised, law governed, democratic countries with a free press, and yeah. which and, and which cannot be dismissed as in some way irrelevant to the argument, the laws against drug possession are enforced, and as a result, drug use is less. No, the reason drug use is is partly cultural oh, so and partly geography. Japan is a long way from the supply chain. The supply chain runs from South America into Europe and the United States primarily. It doesn't run the supply chain into Japan. Japan is a, a set of islands in the middle of the ocean. The supply chain is much more difficult into Japan. But more importantly, there's no cultural history as there is in this country and there, as there is in Western Europe and many other parts of the world of taking substances to On the, the same contrary, extent. the reason for Japan's extremely ferocious drug laws is because they had a very serious uh, amphetamine problem immediately after the war. And that but, is the reason why those laws exist. Do you, you're, do you, you're, do you, you're, you're again, you don't know what you're is, doing. Is it really the case that you do not believe that there are any medical issues associated with addiction and the taking of drugs? That you seriously don't, don't believe I, that there's a medical uh, problem that somebody has when they become addicted to, a, to, to either heroin or cocaine or any other addictive substance, including alcohol? That you don't view that as a medical, you see it as purely as a moral failing? Because you're, that changing, to me, you're changing the subject again, because you're losing. I'm, I'm not changing you're the changing subject. changing the subject because no, you're because, losing. I'm happy to argue about no, this. No, because you accuse me of an offensive, uh, an offensive viewpoint or a dangerous viewpoint. The, the, I think what you're the a deeply irresponsible person. I think, I think someone should point it out to you while you've got time to, to, to amend your life and stop arguing for this catastrophic and dangerous and I think It I think, makes me genuinely angry and that responsible, it makes me angry. responsible people argue for something which will destroy other people's lives for the profit of greedy lobbies. Yeah. That is the end result of what you suggest. And what? it makes me very angry because these people could be these people could be people known to you and me whose lives You've are. You said that by. they are now under prohibition yeah, I, I, known I, I, to you. I, 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 there is no prohibition. There, there is absolutely prohibition. What is, what is the standard, what is the standard so police response to... People are in prison serving police? 25, is, 30 and 40-year sentences for supplying drugs. If there is prohibition, tell me, what is the standard police response to finding someone in possession of marijuana in this country? The standard response is, is at the moment, to simple possession is a proportionate one, generally. What is it? Which is to give Name a caution it. or a warning, or, or at the very least for the first or the second offence, particularly for a young person, because otherwise you're going to criminalise a 16 or 17-year-old, give them a criminal record for life, by, by, because they have possession of half no, a gram of marijuana. I didn't ask you for a whole half dis a gram of cannabis. disquisition about these things. I, asked I told you what, you what happens. What the they get a warning or a caution for say, a first offence. How can you describe as prohibition? A circumstance in which the police actually largely turn a blind eye. Well, that's the, the case with speeding. London stinks of cannabis. Both of us on our way home from, from this meeting will smell it as we go by. The other day on the 20th of April, on the great celebration of marijuana, which took place in Hyde Park, the police stood around and did nothing. While and what would you have them do? People what would you have them do? Wild people openly, I would have them enforce the law. Or they'd lock it's up what, every single person in Hyde Park. I didn't say that. 
But, you, get, but, you, get, you, you just you just exude straw men. No, you just I, suggested I, I, that they should the do something about this park full of people smoking cannabis. I said the police should Lock them up. No, All of them. No, there are many there are many many things you can do, particularly between first and second offences. But you should not, if you are the police and you're paid to enforce the law, turn a blind eye to the law being openly broken. Do you think the police should turn a blind eye to the law being openly broken? I don't think you have any, any idea. Like you have no idea how underfunded isn't that, isn't what and underpressed the police are. They have no resources. Their numbers have been cut by twenty two thousand in the last ten years. Twenty eight thousand support workers. No. They have no police officers to investigate rape. To investigate. Homicide cases, certainly not to investigate serious life-destroying frauds, and the idea that thousands of police officers should be deployed to arrest individual teenagers for possession of cannabis. There, there he goes is again. Just another, another, another straw man. In the in the days when the drug laws were, were enforced in this country before the, before the early 1970s, we had far fewer police officers, both as a as total number. Which drug laws? And the before the, the 1970s. before the 1971 Act was the, the the Dangerous Drugs Act. But the, the but when was that enforced? The, it was it was enforced up to and including. Indeed, the, the Misuse of Drugs Act was more seriously enforced until Lord Hailsham's speech to the Magistrates Association. Many drugs weren't you prohibited before 1971. read my book. Many drugs it's, weren't prohibited before 1971. Lots of drug use was completely socially acceptable. The taking of cocaine and heroin was acceptable in the golden age of the Victorian era. You're so fond of What can one do? I'm not fond of the Victorian era. I was, however, alive in the recent world. I know that the drug laws were enforced considerably more before the early 1970s than they are now, and I know why. I've written a book about it. It's called The War We Never Fought. You should read it. It would do you a lot of good. But the fact is we had f fewer police, both as a, as a total number and per head of the population, in the days when the law was more enforced than we have now, and they had fewer duties. So, so your suggestion they had, is... They had, they, sorry, they had more duties now than they, than they have then, including prosecution, now done by the CPS, the securing of commercial property... So your, property, your position now, is that now, now the 22,000 cuts off they of managed the police to enforce numbers... The law. Don't make excuses for the police. It's not your job. Well, I, I, They've got masses of PR men who, who, who do that it. That is who, absolutely who ridiculous and offensive to police officers up and down this country who are driving round alone at night under enormous pressure every single shift just to deal with domestic violence, just to deal with street violence and knife crime and all of the other things are happening. To suggest that priests are sitting around drinking cups of tea in the police station with plenty These plenty of time on their There goes hands. another straw man. It's you saying that, not me. You're suggesting, the, police, you're suggesting that the police resources, I, I, they've got so many, so much manpower. I thought, I thought barristers were trained to argue. Well, I'm just amazed. I, I, I thought I'd be up against something here. Every single point. Every single slogans and regurgitations from the big dope playbook. I mean, honestly, have you got nothing better than this? Every single point that you've made, with all due respect, is utterly ridiculous. You have no sympathy for the health effects on the millions of people and the hundreds of thousands of drug-related deaths that take place in large measure because of prohibition. They do not take place because of, of a lack of police enforcement. Every single crime in this country, almost every crime derives from the prohibition of drugs. If you'd spent 25 years in the criminal courts, if you'd spoken to hundreds of people charged with crimes, if you've had to cross-examine witnesses witnessing drug murders, if you had any direct first-hand knowledge of the effects of, of prohibition on our society, you could not and would not make these arguments. What is this prohibition of which you speak? We've, asked, we, we, we've been through this. You have no prohibition. Go and visit someone you in prison serving 30 years for this non-existent law. For possession of cannabis? 
Not for possession there's of cannabis, for supplying heroin there's or nobody, cocaine. There's nobody in, posi- in, in prison of course for not. possession there's, of cannabis. Of course not, and there's nobody gets to speeding well, tickets for doing 31 will, miles an hour. What you will find, if you examine very large numbers of crimes of violence, is that they're committed by people who are, who are long-term users of cannabis. You come back to the cannabis. The cannabis is ultra-high strength. It is ultra-high strength. A tiny fraction of cannabis users are violent. A tiny fraction of cannabis users ever... Even taking high-strength skunk in the current environment with enormous THC content, which would never be permitted under a licensed and and legalised system, you would never have the strength of cannabis that has evolved over the the last few years in a legal and licensed system. The more important figure than the the number of cannabis users who are violent is the number of violent people who are cannabis users, which is actually the point that I make, which is that it is astonishing in how many cases where the, where the, the drug use of violent offenders is examined, it is astonishing how many of them turn out to be I've n- long-term I don't think I've users. ever come across that in my 25 years. Well, then you're extraordinarily unobservant. The killers of Lee Rigby, for instance, uh, lived on a cannabis farm. All the um, all, that, all all the all the recent um, where's the cause all the recent, and effect there? The, You're the suggesting recent, they the killed recent... Lee Rigby because they smoked cannabis. I am it's su- just ridiculous. I, no, I, I'm, I'm I'm suggesting that they were mentally ill uh, following long-term use of cannabis. Actually, and if you look at their demeanour, that wasn't the even their defence at the trial. I know it wasn't because the the, the, the you're, you're because, making because, their because defence the criminal, up because the criminal law is uninterested in. The criminal because law the police, was interested the in the fact that that was a vicious the, the, murder the police, as a result of a very, vicious ideology. It, it was a very Nothing vicious. to do with cannabis. Okay, so, so the, fact that the, the fact that the murderers were themselves long-term cannabis users, that one of them nearly spent time in Broadmoor, and that their demeanour at the time of the crime and, and indeed in the, in the dot during the trial was not that of saying people is entirely irrelevant to the crime. No, what I'm saying is that you'd need a psychiatrist to provide a psychiatric report to come to the conclusions you've come to on your own, presumably by reading reports in the media. Did you watch the trial? Were you there? Have you seen any of the evidence? I've seen a lot of the evidence, yes. But what, I mean, I what, what, what bits you, of it? What, what, the bits what, where they were indoctrinated what, what, what you, into, his, I, the, into the, Islamism. The, the, you asked for an example of, of a person who'd committed a serious crime, who'd, been, who'd taken cannabis, saying you'd never seen no, it. No, no, no. I gave no, you I one. Didn't. You changed the subject. I was about to give you some more. In all the, all the, the Bataclan murders, the Charlie Hebdo murders, almost every single one of the recent mass murders in France, the culprits have been found to be long-term users of cannabis. The killers of two. Uh, the killers there, of the killers. Let me finish. Any the, evidence the, 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 the killers of two Canadian soldiers in in recent years, likewise long-term users of cannabis. The, the man who who shot in the head, Congressman Gabriel Giffords in Arizona, and who killed a large number of other people, was also a long-term user of cannabis. There is a, the, the, you can find in a pattern. Of the, because the, the, that, that subset of crime, which is terrorist mass murder and other mass murder, is unusually well covered in, in a world where a lot of crime is just simply not covered in the media. You find this correlation over and over and over again. Correlation where there is, where there is serious crime. Barack Obama used, is, ter- used cocaine where, where and used marijuana is, in his early life, and he became is, one of the is, best presidents of the United States. Is that is, cause and effect? Where is the serious? Did it help him where to make him is, a better president? Where there is serious crime, you will uh, serious violence. You will very often find marijuana use. It's a simple matter of you'll find of, of marijuana use everywhere. Fact. It's a, it's universal. Not here, it isn't. Thank you, Peter and Chris. Finally, in this week's issue, Julie Bindle criticises young women who say they're queer simply because they want to sound more interesting. Although experimenting with one's sexuality is never a bad thing, she says, spare of thought for those who had to suffer for their sexuality and for whom being a lesbian isn't just a lifestyle choice, but often a political choice. Julie joins me now. 
Julie, you start your piece with this phrase, lesbian tourism. Can you explain what exactly you mean by that? Well, not that I would have ever imagined this 30 years ago, but lesbianism is quite cool at the moment. Although we did in the 90s go through some kind of lipstick cool phase where I think Cindy Lauper and Madonna and a few others decided it was a bit cool to kiss a girl on stage. But at the moment, actually, it's not lesbians that are, that are cool. It's being queer. And by that, I mean heterosexual people who have an occasional fumble with someone of the same sex and then decide they're going to identify as queer or not even having had a fumble with someone of the same sex, but they dye their fringe blue and they've decided that they are like dressing up as furry animals once a week or just that they think that they are, I don't know, might be polyamorous or asexual or aromantic And that has all of a sudden become part of the LGBTQQIP plus rainbow, where we're going to have to use Cyrillics in the future if we run out of alphabet. Whereas previously, of course, queer was about being lesbian or gay. And and you don't see it as a good thing that more people feel confident to see themselves as queer? I absolutely think it's a good thing that more people of any generation can openly and confidently declare themselves to be not heterosexual or not just heterosexual or bisexual or lesbian or gay or at the moment in love with someone of the same sex or having sex with someone of the same sex. All of that is good. What isn't good is the colonisation of a liberation term. So it used to be and still should be, I'm not harking back to the past, there were lots of terrible things about the past, particularly when I came out in the 70s. But it used to be during the lesbian and gay liberation movement that we recognised we were an oppressed people, that we needed to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of heterosexuality, that there was something that particularly women, who were lesbians, referred to as compulsory heterosexuality. In other words, heterosexuality is fine if you openly and freely choose it and enjoy it, But women are forced into it through marriage, through punishment rapes, and I'm talking about in the global north and the global south, through being pressured into having a boyfriend. Well, actually, the last thing that you want to do is to be with a man. And we rejected compulsory heterosexuality. And we were proudly lesbian or proudly gay. And we overturned laws, attitudes and prevented violence and bigotry and bullying for future generations. Not completely, but but we did a fairly good job. So when I say colonisation or or being or the identity being appropriated, it's not because I'm keen on identity politics as such, as I say in the article, but how dare heterosexuals who think that they're a little bit kinky but who have never had an ounce of bigotry directed towards them or a threat or a rejection from a family member or an employer or anyone, how dare they use the same labelling that we had to adopt in order to fight for our liberation because it was a nightmare to have to say openly I am a lesbian or I am a gay man. I mean, do you think that being a lesbian is as much a political statement as it is a sexual statement? 
Well, for me it is. And when I say that, people often get very cross, very angry, and start throwing insults at me, like, well, you're not a real lesbian. You talk about being a lesbian for political reasons because you don't like men and you don't like heterosexuals and therefore you forced yourself to somehow pretend to be attracted to women. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, if it didn't look ridiculous, I would have taken these people to court to prove in a court of law that I am actually a lesbian. (laughs) They've actually said to me that I'm a fake lesbian, that I'm pretending that I've colonised the identity because I say it's something that any woman can happily choose to be. And so the politics side of it isn't that you're only a lesbian because you really don't like men and you think that you should be one. Of course I'm attracted to women um, and of course that's, that's where my sexual identity lies and my sexual attraction lies. But the politics bit is saying... This is a political statement in a world where heterosexuality is seen as the norm and where women and men are punished for deviating from that. It's similar in a way, not totally, but in a way that people of colour in the global north rail against the notion that white is the norm and that people of colour are somehow defective from that. You talk in your piece also about real lesbians and fake lesbians. I mean, what would a fake lesbian have to do in your eyes to prove that they were a real lesbian? That that moment would never come for me. I, so you I'm, can never you can never cross I, that. I, I'm not in, I'm not in the business of ever saying to a lesbian uh, or to a woman who says I'm a lesbian, but you're not a real one. Ever ever ever. What I mean by fake lesbians are the women, the young, blue fringed lot, um, who want to feel that bit special who call themselves queer because they've once kissed a girl. And I'm thinking of one woman in particular, but there are many more like her, who has a public profile, who is quite attention-seeking, and who ended up on a list of 100 top LGBTQ people in a national newspaper um, because she, on coming out day... You know, there's a day for everything now. Um, so that apparently there's a coming out day. She tweeted that she now identified as gender non-binary queer something or other. Now she's heterosexual. Like I say, she's once kissed a girl. And ended up on this list. I mean, they're ridiculous, these lists. But with people who had genuinely fought for lesbian and gay liberation at a time when we were getting our heads kicked in for doing it. So that's what I mean. It's using the term queer when you're heterosexual, but you want to just leave people guessing that really, even though you're married to Nigel, who's a stockbroker, and you're going to end up living in the Cotswolds with two kids and a dog, that you are that bit different and special. They're not. Thank you, Julie. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please, please do let us know on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcast from. It's very helpful for us to have your feedback. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can get everything discussed, as well as more from Harry Mount, Jenny McCartney and Mary Wakefield. Plus, we've got a special offer. Get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, plus a free £20 Amazon gift voucher at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.
This podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform.